Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. Today we've got a topic dear and near to my heart as an apologist. We're going to talk with Mark Lanier, who is a, uh, he's been dubbed by the National Law Journal as a superstar among plaintiffs' lawyers. He's an acclaimed trial lawyer, has been on Fox News and a host CNNBC Squawk Box, teaches classes uh, at Stanford and other universities. He's written a fascinating new book called Atheism on Trial, which we're going to jump into. But Mark, I know you're a super busy guy. Thanks for carving out some time to talk to us about your new book that just released. Well, thank you all you do to defend the faith in intellectual ways that that don't bypass our minds, but take into account the totality of, of experience and people. So it's my honor to get to be on your podcast. Well, amen to that. I really got the sense in the book that you are arguing as a lawyer, which is an intellectual pursuit, but you care about the heart and you care about people and didn't want to set up any straw man along the way. So maybe before we jump into some of the case that you make challenging atheism, I'd love to just hear about really practically how your training as a lawyer has shaped the way you think and how you approach religious questions such as the existence of God. Before I became a lawyer, I trained to be a a biblical language scholar. So my undergraduate degree is in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, and 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 I s- sidelined it also with a, a, a preaching degree. And I've always had one foot in the legal world and one foot in the world of faith. And so they're, they're just my two legs. And that's the way I walk. And and it's interesting because the interplay has been quite uh, um, well fit to my personality. I got in the biblical languages because I got tired of hearing people tell me what the Bible says, and I wanted to be able to read it and translate it myself. I got into law, and I learned that one of the fundamental aspects of practicing law is that you do original research. You don't say, here's what someone told me the law is, or even here's what someone told me happened. You need to go back as close as you can to the original sources and use those in the practice of law. So you put those together, and it's shaped the way I look at my faith, but it's also shaped the way I practice law. It's two legs that, that, that walk together. So let's talk just a little bit about just more personally uh, and how, the, how this approach that uh, Sean asked you about, did that, how did that impact your own decision to become a Christian? Is that basically the approach you followed when you came to faith? No, uh, it's not. It's the, the, the approach I followed in growing in my faith. I came to faith as a young boy. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but my mom and my dad always taught me to question everything. They mm. believed that God was truth and that, that truth you don't need to ever shy from questioning. So I hit that adolescent, uh, uh, late teen, early 20s years where uh, I, I really tried to examine my faith to determine if it's something I merely inherited or if it's something that met the academic rigor that my my Hebrew studies met or that, that my study of constitutional law met. And so, so it was at that point in my life, already a Christian, but where I wanted to try assiduously hard to set my Christianity aside and look objectively at the reasons that I believe my faith to be valid. 
And so I began to do that. And then when our son was getting his PhD uh, in philosophy and logic at Oxford University, hmm. and, and he'd gotten his master's there as well, um, uh, I came into contact with a lot of his friends who were atheists. And I started working through uh, these discussions with them in an effort to try and 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 help them sharpen their focus on what the real questions were that, that frankly, they had trouble answering. And so I, I think this, this informed my, not my decision to become a Christian, but certainly my walk in, in, in faith as a believer. Can you talk about one of the approaches you take in this book is making a distinction between direct evidence, such as eyewitness testimony, and indirect circumstantial evidence that shapes how we put something like atheism on trial? Sure. So I just finished trying uh, last November the national opioid case in, in Cleveland, Ohio. It's in federal court. And the judge gives instructions to the jury before they go back there and make their decision. Now, this, this has all of the press. It's, it's supposedly the most complicated case in, in, in the history of the American judicial system, or so said the New York Times. Uh, it, it's, it's got national implications. Billions of dollars are on the line. Uh, it, it, it's got the focus and attention of most of the legal world. And, and in a case of that magnitude, the judge instructed the jury on something very important. The judge said, there are two kinds of evidence. There is direct evidence, which might be, I'm standing outside, I see that it's raining, so I can testify on direct knowledge it is raining. But the judge said there is also circumstantial evidence. And circumstantial evidence is not anybody has, has testified, I directly see the rain, but we see a flock of people coming in from outside. They're all wearing rain gear. They've got umbrellas. They're soaked to the skin. Their umbrellas are shaking off water. And we hear thunder and patter, patter, patter on the window panes. Now, that's not direct evidence it's raining, but it is circumstantial evidence. And the judge tells Every jury, whether it was that nationally important opioid trial or just a car wreck where Billy Bob runs a red light, <laughs> the judge will always say that you are to give circumstantial evidence just as much weight and authority wow. as direct evidence, because oftentimes you don't have direct evidence in this world. I'll never in a murder case have direct evidence absent an eyewitness, but that doesn't mean that if there's no eyewitness, you can't convict someone of murder. Hmm. You've got to take the circumstances into account. Mark, let me tackle another uh, aspect of your legal practice uh, that I think is really helpful for this discussion. One of the most insightful parts of the book, I thought, was the your discussion of the burden of proof. And who who is it, either the atheist or the theist, that ends up having the burden of proof in the question of God's existence? And I thought particularly one particularly helpful insight was that uh, oftentimes when atheists are challenged, the way they respond to that is by shifting just sort of reflect, almost reflexively shifting the burden of proof back onto the theist. But you hold something different. How does the notion of the burden of proof work itself out in the question of God's existence? Well, when I go to trial, uh, the, the, the judge will never let me, if I'm representing a, a, a victim, the judge will never let me win 
if I don't carry the burden of proof. If I'm going to show uh, that, that my women developed ovarian cancer because they used baby powder that was laced with asbestos, I've got to prove that. That's my burden. And I go into court and I take it gladly. If someone is an atheist and they want to try to tell me that there is no God, then the, the, the burden of proof, I think, first falls on them. And, and don't get me wrong. I think there are valid proofs for the existence of God. And I'll talk about those in a moment. But, but, but if someone's going to say there is no God, then my response to them is, what's your proof of that? I mean, 90% of the world believes there's a God. Now, we may argue over whether it's Vishnu or whether it's Allah or whether it's Yahweh or whether it's just Hashem. Um, but, 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 you know, that, that the existence of deity and divinity is, is recognized historically by and large by most people who are humans. So if you're going to take that underdog view that says there is absolutely no divinity in existence, then if that's the minority, a, a huge minority view, you really are incumbent to come forward with some evidence. Now, if you want to be an agnostic and simply say, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, I can't make up my mind, then I think it's appropriate for me as a theist to say, well, let me give you reasons that, that you should believe. And then I can take the burden of proof there. But an atheist who says there is no God, prove it. So, Mark, why, why do you think atheists so, so commonly shift the burden of proof uh, in this conversation when, when faced with challenges to their view? Well, they shift it because they can't prove God, God doesn't exist. And they'll say things like, well, you can't prove a negative. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> you absolutely can. You know, and they'll pull out like Carl Sagan's argument of, of the dragon in the garage where, where you can't. And, and Sagan was using it for, for not belief of God purposes, but it's used in that manner now. And, and Sagan's argument was, well, I, you say, I can't prove there's no dragon in your garage. And, and because if I say there's no dragon and you look in the garage, you'll just say, well, it's an invisible dragon. Well, how do I show it's not an, you know, da, 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 da. And, and I'm thinking, well, that's just silly. Because in a courtroom, you can absolutely prove a negative. I can prove there's no dragon in the garage. The first thing we do is define what a dragon is. And once we get that definition, that it's corporeal, that it's lizard-shaped, that it breathes fire, whatever definition we agree to, if you do the proper steps, you can prove a negative. There is no dragon in the garage. If you define it differently, if it's... Uh, uh, the Queen of Dragons on uh, Game of Thrones uh, on a DVD. Okay, well, fine. Let's define it differently. And the DVD is stored in your garage. Um, but 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 you can prove negatives. However, an atheist can't prove there's no existence. There is no God because th there is. They they don't have the ability to prove that negative. So what they have as their last result is, well, I don't see him. So you prove it. And that's just a cop out. I think it's important when we talk about atheism on trial to have clarity what we mean by atheism because in the philosophical literature and you mention uh, reading some of the new atheists, they're pretty clear that it's a belief that God doesn't exist, not necessarily certainty that God doesn't exist, but a belief that God doesn't exist. 
that's different than how some people will define atheism as like ah moral lacking morality ah theism just lacking a belief in god so when you say atheism on trial just for clarity you're saying atheism as the belief that there is no god that carries a certain burden of proof and the claim that there is no God or belief that there's not, you're challenging that, saying that's not the most reasonable belief to come to. Is that fair how you see it? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, you know, I will say this. I've got so many friends who are atheists and so many friends who are agnostic, and many of them are incredibly moral, wonderful, uh, great people. I'd let them babysit my grandchildren. You know, I mean, they, I, I've got <laughs> I, I recognize that 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 there are people who are still hardwired with God's morality, even if they don't know that it's God who hardwired them that way. And and so they they can be marvelously moral, but not believe in God. And and I, I'm quick to stress that you you take these outspoken atheists. And and these are the pop writers. Uh, these are the people that that frankly, you know, uh, Richard Dawkins is is a really good scientist, and I take my hat off to him as that. But I think he's a hack as a philosopher, um, and and I think he that's just not his. Don't, don't, sugar, don't sugarcoat that assessment now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I say that uh, uh, in Texas we would add "bless his heart," so it doesn't sound so bad. Um, uh, but uh, I, I would say that that you know, it, frankly, he is a hack when it comes to philosophy in in my estimation. Now, maybe I'm an idiot and I'm wrong, but that's the way I see. So these types of people who are evangelistic in their atheism have a burden of proof in my mind. Now, Mm. if you want to be someone who says, I just don't know, and that's where you want to land. If I want to bring you to my side of the fence in as as a theist, as someone who does believe there is divinity that exists in this world or in this in this existence, then I. I've got a burden of proof there, and I'll gladly take that on. I'll gladly tell people, come with me on this logical journey into the courtroom, and and let's look at the evidence, because when we assess the evidence, I think it is overwhelming in support that there's a divinity. I can't find a better explanation for why the world is the way it is, why I am the way I am, and, and why we live this life we live. One of the things I found really helpful in your book, Mark, is that you have a lot of kind of beginning introductory uh, material from your training in law to how you approach this question, such as how you keep your Christian bias out of the investigation. But for sake of time, let's jump into some of the objections that you really deal with. For example, we often hear that unanswered prayer proves atheism, or maybe prove is too strong, it suggests atheism. What do you make of the phenomena of unanswered prayer? Well, I think a lot of people don't think this through well. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, my, my, I have five children. Um, we're up to eight and a half grandchildren. Uh, but, but one thing I've learned is, is that my children always had an ability to ask me for things. And many things they'd ask me for, and my answer would be yes. Many things they'd ask me for, and my answer would be no. And many things they'd ask me for, and my answer would be not yet. And, and all of those are answers. If I say no to one of them, they can't walk away and say, dad didn't answer my request. I did answer it. I answered it no. 
So this idea of unanswered prayer isn't really what people are concerned about. What they're more concerned about is God doesn't seem to be our butler at our command to, or our DoorDash driver who's going to bring us our food of choice when we ask for it, no questions asked. That's, that's a rather immature way of looking at the complexity of the cosmos. Um, there was a, a, an economics textbook I had. Uh, I was an economics minor. The book's still available. It's called There Ain't No Such Thing as a Free Lunch, which is an abbreviation, Tanstoffel, among economists. It's a recognition that something as small as the price of shoe leather in China can affect the price of eggs in Canada. Now, it, it, it may not be a very big effect. It may be so infinitesimal that you can't trace it. But it will have an effect upon everything because everything's related. So if you get the complexity of this grand global scheme, you multiply it times all of the years that have come before and any years that may come into the future. The biblical view is that God is working all of this towards an end product that is for the good of his people, the redemption of the planet, and the establishment of his kingdom among us. Now, if that's where God's working everything toward that, and he's got all of these moving parts, we cannot be so narcissistic as to expect that God to grant all of our personal desires, or maybe only 90% of them, or maybe we're extra generous this day, 70%. But, but not understand that that it has implications. One example: uh, I was uh, at a football game, college football game, and I'd gone back uh, to to attend it, and we won. I was so excited we won. I'm driving back to the airport to fly home. I'm listening to the post game interviews on the radio, and one of the players bless his heart, as we say in Texas, <laughs> one of the players says, well, I knew we were going to win because I prayed to God that we would win. And I thought, well, out of the 65 people on the team, I'm sure a number of them were praying to God, but I'm sure a number on the other team were praying to God that they would win too. So God's got to answer that prayer, quote unquote, but, but one team's going to win and one team's going to lose. And so does the team who wins walk away and say, hey, there is a God. He answered our prayer. And the team that loses walk away and say, there is no God. He didn't answer our prayer. Well, the world's just too complicated to make it so simplistic. And so I urge anybody who thinks that, that God didn't answer their prayer, look beyond the immediate letdown of not getting what you wanted even as virtuous as it may seem to you at the moment. You know, the, the, the death of a, of a child, the, the, the cancer that won't be treated. I mean, there are some horrible things that happen to people that, that some are answered by prayer and with yes, and some are answered by prayer with no. But, but we, we need to keep in mind that this question is so much bigger than, hey, God, at six o'clock tonight, would you cure all the cancer in the world? Mark, let me pick up on that just a little bit, because one of the other challenges to theism is from, as you know, the problem of evil, and as you as you point out, 
there's a difference between evil that is caused by by fallen human beings. Uh, I think that's that's easy enough to to account for in the fact that God allows genuine free will, uh, and you know is is we live in a world where you know God doesn't intervene to stop every little bit of evil because it would also blunt free will. But the the harder one I think is the you know the the stuff that's not a product of of human evil, such as tsunamis that hit, uh, you know, places along the coast, or you know, a cancer that arrives in the the life of a child. That that those seem to be a little tougher challenges for theism. Um, what 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 do you say to those? Well, I I, I have two group responses to that in a sense, or two family of responses. The first is, before answering it, the very fact that we cry out at the injustice and the pain Hmm. of it all should tell us something very significant about who we are and how we're made. Because I don't think that the sharks in the ocean when another shark eats a fish, I don't think that they go into mourning over the fact that that the shark's eating a fish. Uh, you know, there's something unique about us because we we sense that this should not be. This is not fair. It's not fair that the hurricane wipes out the God-fearers while the godless people with all the money got out of the way. It's not fair that the tornado tore through the church instead of the 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 nightclub. You know, it's not fair that the fill in the blank. Um, the, the whole idea of fairness is something that's so deep within us and uniquely human. And so I, I, I don't want to just go to an answer without first noticing how important it is that we're asking the question. Because I think that's of great importance. Now, what are the answers? Uh, the Odyssey uh, is a is a combination of two Greek words. Uh, Theo, we're still back with that word for God, and DK is the Greek family of words that talk about victory and and things like that. Uh, judgment is there, but uh, righteousness and and all. And so uh, the righteousness of God is is at issue when a hurricane blows through and takes people out. And how do we explain that? Well, there are a number of different people who come up with a number of good questions. I mean, good answers to this. Uh, I was talking last week with Michael Lloyd, who's the principal at Wycliffe Hall at, at Oxford University. And he's got some really strong views that, that uh, uh, are worth people Googling. I, I won't parrot them here. But what I would urge people to realize is God did not set up a world system where humanity wasn't given a responsibility to try to fight against these injustices and against these tragedies. Hmm. So I view science as a tool that God has given humanity. I think you can find the charge to understand the creation and to work through the creation in a way to mitigate and to lessen the pain and the suffering and the problems that come about. And if you look at science, science is a, a, a tool that can be used for good or can be used for evil like most anything else God gives us. I can eat food to the nourishment of my body, 
or I can eat food in a gluttonous way that's going to send me hardened arteries into the tomb. Um, you know, we, we've got an ability to, to use medicine and science in ways that are beneficial. And so my charge and responsibility is that God doesn't want the hurricane to wipe out people, that God wants us to use science to try to figure out if the hurricane's coming. And if it is, to get people out of the way, to try to reach those people whose homes have been destroyed with compassion and love and help them rebuild or help them them mud out their homes. You know, we're to find the hungry and, and the places of famine, and we're supposed to bring them food. We're supposed to use science to help us figure out how to grow food more efficiently. We're supposed to use these tools God's given us to lessen the pain that comes through this world and the way it is right now. So I got a question for you uh, related to human value. One of the things that you argue in the book is that non-believers live as if God exists. And this shows kind of the weakness of their own worldview and arguably the strength of a biblical worldview. Why can't there be human value if there is no God? Okay, think about it this way. If there is no God, what, based upon the best science that we rely on every day just to get in a car and drive, what do we have? We have atoms and, and subatomic particles. But let's zoom in on the atoms. And those atoms put themselves together in a way that makes molecules. Now, I don't think that the atom itself has got some overweening morality or ethic to it. It simply is. It is a non-personal, uh, physical part of nature. And those atoms then come together into molecules, and those molecules get manipulated and changed such that you're able to ultimately build yourself up to a car or build up to a human being. But if a human being is only a collection of atoms, only a collection of molecules, if you can break molecular biology down and find that there's nothing more to a human, then the idea that there is morality is a myth. It's a made-up uh, 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 occurrence. It's it's not something that 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 I mean. At what point do these molecules cross over and start having morality? If if all we are are sacks of chemicals, what makes one sack of chemical any better than another? Now maybe the answer is some are more complicated, and we should value the sacks of chemicals that are more complicated because that gives them some inherent value. Okay, now this gets really interesting. Because I don't know many people who want to side with Adolf Hitler. But Hitler's entire position was there are limited resources hmm. in this world. Let's use those limited resources on the best breeding stock so that that breeding stock will further humanity down the chain of evolution. And, and, and so Hitler has every reason in the world to, to support this idea that some are better than others. Yet we come to the scene and say, no, all human beings have value and merit. Well, where does that come from? How do you get that simply from a world that views us all as sacks of chemicals, hmm. that we're cosmic stardust? 
and that there will come a time where our chemicals will quit uh, interacting in such a way that we have these electrical and chemical synapses in our brain that give us conscious thought and poof, we're gone and we return to more obvious cosmic stardust. Um, you know, that, that's, that's an illusion. Morality is an absolute illusion if there's nothing to give it meaning. Mark, I've got one last question for you, but I want to make sure our, our audience understands that you respond to some common objections in here that we won't have time to go into, such as what if somebody doesn't feel God? Does that mean God is not present? And you also put forth some other positive evidences for the existence of God that challenge atheism, such as beauty. But I'm curious, as a lawyer, would you say simply using the the legal system in the United States itself, can we conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that atheism is false, theism is true, and Christianity is true? If you are limited to those tools, what do you think could be shown to be the case beyond reasonable doubt? Um, I think uh, we could show beyond reasonable doubt, uh, certainly by the preponderance of the evidence, which is the greater weight of credible evidence, the civil burden of proof, but either one, um, both that there is a God and that Christianity is um, uh, the most reasonable explanation for why the world is the way it is, for why you are the way you are, why I am the way I am. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a worldview that's livable. It's a worldview that makes for good people in a good society if it's truly followed. And, and it passes all of the, the tests that I have for something that's valid. So this is actually the second book that I've written for IVP. Uh, uh, the first book I wrote was Christianity on Trial. And Christianity on Trial was one where I asked the questions, okay, is there a God? If so, what sort of God would he, she, or it be? And would this God have any interest in humanity? And if so, why? And is it reasonable to think that this God would attempt to communicate to us in Holy Scripture? And is it reasonable to, to deduce, can you, can you fairly determine that, that uh, even down to the resurrection of Jesus, the audacity of the resurrection of Jesus, what evidence do we have for that? What evidence do we have for an afterlife? Um, what evidence do we have for free will that we're actually making some choices here? Uh, all of that I put into that book because I think that that itself uh, is very provable. And then uh, I'm a year out. To, in fact, I'm sending in my manuscript in a couple of days for the third, which is World Religions on Trial. So it's oh. a trilogy. And in that, yeah, I look at, I look at the, the, first of all, what I call secular spiritualism, the idea of people who say, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Wow. Uh, I look at that. I look at the, the mystical faiths, Hinduism, Buddhism, et cetera. And then I look at the historical faiths. I take uh, a, a look at, at Islam. I take a look at Mormonism. I take a look at uh, 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 political Christianity, as I call it, which is not the Christian faith I adhere to. Um, so uh, that book will be coming out. But I think you can you can come to all of these conclusions and be rational. And, and I don't find any other answers that come that explain mm. this to me. Well, Mark, your book is fascinating as an apologist. Anytime I see anybody with training outside of like formal apologetics, especially law, taking a look at these questions, it, uh, it gets my interest. So I appreciate, given all just the success and acclaim you've had as a lawyer, 
carving out time to write this book. I think it's great for Christians. Uh, you'll be challenged to think about your belief in a new way. And even apologists will find some fresh insights in this. But also seekers, if you listen to this and you're not a believer and you're open to an atheist worldview being put on trial, uh, this is a great place to start. So, Mark, thanks for writing a great book, Atheism on Trial. And thanks for joining us on the Think Biblically podcast. You bet, Scott and Sean. Thanks for what you're doing and uh, keep it up. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including the new fully online, fully online, bachelor's in Bible, theology, and apologetics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and consider sharing it with a friend. Thank you for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.